Is my mouth good? So I started a podcast. Iconosass. I'm your host, MK Lords, and this is Iconosass Peters Out, number five. Today, we are covering rule number four from Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. And rule number four says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. As I've done before, I will be kind of going through this chapter with some of the critiques, and then I'll tell you the Queer Eye episode you could watch instead. And so I this rule is really interesting to me. I'm going to go over kind of what I like, what I don't like about it. Um, it's not a bad rule. I think it's, again, very solid self-help advice. There's a lot of really good advice contained in this chapter, uh, same as the last chapter, but I think it kind of falls short, and I think, especially in this chapter, you kind of see some of Peterson's value system come out a little bit. So he starts off the chapter by talking about the internal critic which is that kind of negative voice in your head that kind of compares you to other people and tells you you're not good enough. And this is something we all have. Some people call it like imposter syndrome or something like that. Uh, Especially if you've struggled with self-esteem, this is something that probably you hear a lot. Or if you've struggled with depression. So this is something I think is really relatable. And he starts off by kind of talking about the when people kind of lived in smaller communities and there were kind of experts and this is kind of like a small pond big pond situation too you kind of see this now like in smaller towns you have people who are very good at certain things and you know maybe they leave those towns and they go and they're a small fish in a kind of big big pond and this can kind of lead to feelings of inadequacy because you're no longer special and you're no longer doing things that set you apart from other people and setting uh, ourselves apart from other people is can be a source of self-esteem sometimes like everyone wants to feel special everyone wants to feel like they're really good at something possibly even the best at something and when you wrap your identity around being the best at something it can be a challenge when you encounter people who are better at it than you And it can lead to feelings of inferiority. So the whole first section is kind of about that. And there's not a whole lot I have to, uh, to criticize about it. He's, so he's, he's point on the critical internal voice, I think is really solid. It's saying, um, you know, it it really kind of damages our self-esteem when we, when we let it take over and it can be very alluring because 
a point that he makes that I have to kind of agree with here is the internal critic can be so loud because oftentimes they're correct, just like when you get stuck in certain depressive kinds of mind loops or whatever. It's not that they're necessarily wrong or unrealistic. Sometimes the more disturbing thing is that they're right. So what do we kind of do with the low self-esteem that comes from that realization that you're not the best at something? Um, I don't know. It's a really interesting question. And a part that I kind of highlighted, he goes, you know, this, this voice is so strong because it's oftentimes right. And he goes, there's no shortage of tasteless artists, tuneless musicians, poisonous cooks, bureaucratically personality disordered middle managers, hack novelists, and tedious ideology-ridden professors. Things and people differ importantly in their qualities. So, yeah, it's uh, as someone who is a bit of a social critic, I definitely agree with this. And I also think it's a bit uh, kind of interesting. I wonder if this is like a rare moment of self-reflection for him when he includes ideology-ridden professors, because we're going to get into how Jordan's ideology kind of distorts his reality uh, in just a little bit. But the internal critic's voice is so strong because it is so often right. So it, that's very hard to disagree with. Um, you know, I kind of want to dive into like his his uh, example of ideology-ridden professors. He definitely seems to profess some very strong ideological positions that favor traditionalism and social conservatism, as I've discussed a bunch of times before. So... How does that ideology hold him back from being his best self? Well, I think it's pretty clear that when you have a very specific way of viewing reality in the world and you're unwilling to challenge that, then you can find yourself limited in what you can kind of imagine. And this episode is also a bit about imagination and, you know, not just comparing yourself to who you were yesterday and seeing how far you've come, but also resisting the urge to kind of compare yourself to others and, you know, get, get kind of stuck in what others want you to do or want you to be. So there's kind of the first highlight there. Uh, you know, he, this is, these are all very common, like existential struggles. Uh, and he kind of is saying he goes to critique nihilism a bit and he critiques this uh more so the inner critic voice that uh is telling you everything is terrible but then he also criticizes social psychologists that recommend these positive illusions as the only reliable route to mental health and i i can i can really agree with him on that like i really do think the whole like oh you just gotta think positively thing and your thoughts create your reality and all that it's i mean there's a kernel of truth to it that's why it's so popular but also it doesn't always it's not always true in certain situations sometimes things just happen to you and they are legitimately bad and it doesn't do you any favors to kind of gloss over it or pretend like it isn't happening or, you know, invalidate your own feelings about how awful it is. I can agree with his point here about these types of people that he's saying, uh, you know, what is their credo? Let a lie be your umbrella. A more dismal, rested, pessimistic philosophy can hardly be imagined. Things are so terrible that only delusion can save you. Now, I think that's kind of, I don't feel that his point there really follows from the point he's, or I, I don't know, I guess the premise of what he's saying. Like, I don't think it's good to be delusional about reality, but I also think that the more realistic you are about it, the more absurd you find it. And the less you have to adhere by the rules that it supposedly conforms to. I don't think it's this is pessimistic at all like he does. I kind of think it's the exact opposite. And, I mean, I think a more dismal, wretched, pessimistic philosophy can be imagined. You know, <laughs> like, that things are fixed in such a way that they can never be changed. That things are so terrible that that's you just have to settle for that. 
and that these are just the way things are and they always have been this way is a very sad way to live your life because it lacks imagination and it lacks the motivation to do something different. So let's talk a little bit about imagination and values, philosophy, all of that. So he's not quite a fan of nihilism, which he gets into with his basically advice for not listening to the inner critic. So let me just read this section and then we'll break it down. If the cards are always stacked against you, perhaps the game you're playing is somehow rigged, perhaps by you unbeknownst to yourself. If the internal voice that makes you doubt the value of your endeavors or your life or life itself, perhaps you should stop listening. If the same critical voice within says the same denigrating things about everyone, no matter how successful, how reliable can it be? There will always be people better than you. That's a cliche of nihilism. Like the phrase, in a million years, who's going to know the difference? The proper response to that statement is not, well, then everything is meaningless. It's, any idiot can choose a frame of time within which nothing matters. Talking yourself into irrelevance is not a profound critique of being. It's a cheap trick of the rational mind. Okay, so again, I view this as the complete opposite. Yeah, there will always be people better than you, and honestly, no one's going to know the difference, and yeah, life is meaningless, and that means you can choose any type of frame yeah, any type of way you want to frame reality. Now, this kind of can give you the problem of having too many options to choose from, but I don't think that uh, it's the same as saying, oh, you're talking yourself into irrelevance. Like, saying that nothing matters or has no objective meaning is not necessarily a bad thing, it's not necessarily something that's going to hold you back, but rather it could uh, improve your life, you know, because your reality isn't set in a very specific setting. It's not, you're not confined to one type of reality that everyone else is telling you exists. You know, you don't have to accept their version of reality. Now, I think there are some things we can observe to be true you know, objectively, but it's very few things, and when you get into the realm of, like, values and philosophy, it gets even broader, and it's harder to say who's right and who's wrong. It's harder to say what values are the most helpful for the most amount of people. We're individuals. So he says something that I definitely agree with, a few sections down, value judgments are a precondition for action. And this is absolute. This, this is true. We don't really do things unless we perceive a value to them, regardless of any external values or objective kind of values. So we choose things that are better than others, you know, based on all sorts of criteria. But this begs the question, what does he value? So, and this is really, really important because if you have a very specific set of values, if your values are derived from a very specific religious worldview, then you're going to be limited in the options you can choose uh, for your life. And there's nothing wrong with having values or believing some values to be better than others. I would say I'm not a moral relativist as much as I'm a value pluralist. Like, there are all of these conflicting values and stuff, but I pick and choose the ones that work best for me. And I do rank them as higher than other types of values. For example, honesty. And he gets into this later in the book, too, about not telling lies. And I, you know, am an extremely honest person. I highly value it. I value it a lot higher than other values, for example, especially kind of Judeo-Christian ones that, you know, come from that worldview. So he's totally right about values being a precondition for action. He operates on these value judgments that stem from a very specific worldview, which is a kind of traditional conservatism, Judeo-Christian values. And then he goes on to talk about the internal critic more, and I, I really agree with this next section, 
where he's saying that the internal critic works by comparing you to someone else in a very specific field without taking into account the broader context of what could be going on. So your colleague, for example, he says your colleague outperforms you at work. His wife, however, is having an affair while your marriage is stable and happy. Who has it better? The celebrity you admire is a chronic drunk driver and bigot. Is his life truly preferable to yours? And this point is really good. He goes on to say, first, this is how the internal critic operates. First, it selects a single arbitrary domain of comparison, fame or power. Then it acts as if that domain is the only one that is relevant. Then it contrasts you unfavorably with someone truly stellar within that domain. And this is where the kind of conflicting value judgments can come up too, because you're you're attaching your value to this external standard set by someone else or set by someone who stands out in this very specific field. And of course it's not, it's going to make me feel bad if I try to compare myself to the most successful podcaster and then just like not do anything because I'm like, Oh, I can never be as good as this person. So I think he's totally right about that. And, uh, you know, I do disagree with his value set because of the religion that it comes from and the problems associated with that, but I think he's pretty spot on about that point. And he kind of goes on, another quote I agree with is when he's, he goes through this whole section about what you should do, the the whole word should, uh, which I kind of have, you know, a, uh, an issue with should is something is usually an obligation placed on you by other people. And I think it's probably better to set standards for yourself as opposed to what other people think you should do. And he kind of takes that route too. He goes, dare instead to be dangerous, dare to be truthful, dare to articulate yourself and express, or at least become aware of what would really justify your life. Yeah, I agree. What is being dangerous? Being dangerous is, you know, deciding on what you want to do with your life and going forward with it full force without other people's permission. And I think that he's done this for himself. Now, he considers what he's doing, which is lecturing and writing the self-help book to be a dangerous thing, but he's really reinforcing the existing social structure that is already, I don't even want to give credence to it to say it's dangerous, it's harmful to people who don't fit inside that box. So I, I don't disagree that in this whole section where he's saying, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, kind of talk about your deep and unspoken desires and, and all of these things, uh, you know, lean into it, like try something new, be dangerous. But what is, what is the danger? The only danger in upholding existing social mores is the harm, the definite harm that they cause other people. So his points aren't wrong, but when you consider where his value system and value judgments are derived from, it paints kind of a darker picture. He's thinking that upholding the status quo is what it means to be dangerous, which I don't know. I doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and he does speak to imagination. He talks about living in a framework that defines the present as eternally lacking and the future as eternally better. And if we didn't see things this way, we would not act at all. Okay, yeah, I can agree with that. He goes, but we can see. We can even see things that aren't there. We can envision new ways that things could be better. We can construct new hypothetical worlds where problems we weren't even aware of can now show themselves and be addressed. And this is great. Yeah, we... I tend to think towards the future. I am not a conservative because of this. I don't think that the past was better and that we had this like golden age of anything. I think the future is better. And I think that that is a motivating force, even if you don't believe in any kind of objective meaningfulness, 
the ability to have foresight and think ahead and have an imagination about the future can give your life subjective meaning. And I think that's what most people who podcast or, or, or are involved in kind of social causes um, are aiming for. You know, they, they can see how things could be better, and that is what motivates them and gives their life meaning. That's good. We can see that. So why stick to old ways and old worlds, as he kind of wants us to do? It's just very contra- – he, he's very contradictory with his advice in this um, chapter – Versus what he, you know, actually believes. Um, I mean, again, I don't have a whole lot to criticize about this chapter because I don't really disagree with a lot of it. I just find it in conflict with his professed values. So he gives kind of more advice. He talks about tackling difficult things or, 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 uh, you know, having this sense of meaningfulness by aiming small and doing small, gradual things to meet goals. And I, I do find this also very helpful, too. This is a very common self-help point that people make. He says, aim small. You don't want to shoulder too much to begin with, given your limited talents, tendency to deceive, burden of resentment, and ability to shirk responsibility. Whoa! He gets a little vicious in this section. It's otherwise good advice, you know, do do small things at a time, reward yourself for doing those small things, and, you know, kind of don't try to do everything all at once. Just try to focus on one thing at a time and reward yourself for the strives in that area. That's good advice, but then he basically calls you... <laughs> A morally depraved person. Like, this is good advice, but it reveals his value system, which tells us that we are, that we have original sin, and that we are morally depraved, for lack of a better word. And I know that's very specifically like a Calvinist phrase, and he doesn't identify as a Calvinist, but the concept of original sin is pretty clear. You know, we're all born bad. We're born with this tendency to deceive and burden of resentment and ability to shirk responsibility like yeah we that's maybe not untrue that we have those tendencies but it's a bit it's not like we're born that way i don't think in the same way that you know in the same way that original sin says we are yeah we're born that way because we're animals (laughs) but uh, i don't think we're I don't think evil is, you know, bestowed into us by any kind of spiritual force. Just animals are kind of selfish. So, um, yeah, he kind of reveals himself, his, his uh, religious beliefs in that section a bit. And I think it's important to just, you know, keep note of like, here's the advice he's giving. But then you can't ever forget the, what he actually thinks of people, which, by the way, is a much more negative way of thinking about people than something like nihilism has. Because nihilism, you know, it, I don't know that it makes a whole lot of character pronouncements Whereas religion is all about trying to find and define the natural state of someone within a kind of ethic system of good or evil or things like that. And I mean, it's also about proper behavior and, you know, what is considered proper behavior. And that he goes into that in the next section, religion is instead about proper behavior and trying to find out what it, what it means to be good and what it means to be a good person. And he says basically that good has meant obedient oftentimes. And this has caused classical liberal Western Enlightenment uh, objections to have like a lot of weight to basically say, you know, blind obedience is terrible. And he's like, oh, but it's still good. You know, Uh, obedience isn't enough, but it's a start. You cannot aim yourself at anything if you were completely undisciplined and untutored. You will not know what to do, what to target, and you won't fly straight even if you somehow get your aim right. And then you will conclude there is nothing to aim for, and then you will be lost. And again, this kind of follows the religious beliefs of, you know, if there's no meaning to anything, if there's nothing to aim for, you're just kind of lost. But again, I don't really see it that way. Uh, If you're not constrained to a specific target 
then you can refocus it and learn what the best target is to pursue for your own personal happiness and your own personal fulfillment. And I think that's great. That That's actually, I think, a great joy of nihilism, not a flaw. And to say that anyone who believes in some version of nihilism or ethical nihilism or anything like that, that they're just completely lost is kind of reductive. Again, he does this quite a bit. <laughs> and I don't disagree with him about needing maybe tutorship or a high degree of self-discipline to accomplish your goals. I don't know that you need Judeo-Christian values to have that motivation, though. And he seems to disagree with this by the whole next section about atheism, where he says, oh, you're not an atheist. And then he tells you to read uh, Crime and Punishment, which <laughs> I don't think I need to read Crime and Punishment to know that I am an atheist in, uh, I would say, a broad sense of the word. I don't try to make it a focal point of a lot of stuff I do because to me it seems kind of like a waste of time to be constantly advocating for non-belief in something. But ultimately, I derive my values from my own internal sense of what is right and wrong. And I, my actions follow from those values. And he does go on to say basically that you can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. And again, this is a very common principle too. I mean, don't listen to what people say, watch what their actions are. And sometimes those actions and stated beliefs are in conflict. And how to resolve that, I mean, there's a lot of different therapeutic tools people use to resolve that. Or maybe it comes down to a change in your beliefs, changing what you say you believe so that they line up more with your actions. I, but I also don't believe that people are entirely consistent. And I don't necessarily believe that when actions con conflict with what people say they believe that it's necessarily a malicious thing. I think we're all hypocrites. I believe in hypocritism, <laughs> which is basically like, you know, we're, we're all hypocrites to one degree or another. And I don't judge my um, belief in the goodness of a person necessarily based on whether or not they're perfectly externally consistent with what they say their goals are and what they say they believe. Now, it does depend on the belief, though. For example, if someone's extremely outspoken about a topic that affects my life, for example, a, you know, politician who's extremely anti-LGBTQ, and then, you know, it turns out that they're having an affair with, like, an underage boy or something like that. I mean, this is a very common common situation. That's what I mean by hypocritism. Usually the people who are the most outspoken about something tend to have a hang-up about that very thing. A lot of it is projection. And now, not, not in every single case, but it's a common enough occurrence for you guys to know what I'm talking about. Um, but again, like, it really depends on the specific belief they're professing and their actions. I don't hold people to... I'm try I do try to hold people to certain standards that I believe are high or, or are good. I don't I wouldn't say high, but like are good standards that I have internally determined for myself. But I don't even hold them to the same standards that I try to hold myself to and I don't immediately think someone's a bad or immoral person for having that conflict. And I think it's also unwise to assume that you know the internal motivations of someone based on their actions or that you can really get inside the head of other people and really understand what you want. But because Jordan Peterson is so wise, he believes he can do this. So in another section, he's talking about the usefulness of observation, education, and reflection and communication with others to scratch the surface of your beliefs. And he talks about how everything you value is a product of unimaginably lengthy developmental processes, personal, cultural, and biological. 
you don't understand how what you want, and therefore what you see, is conditioned by the immense, abysmal, profound past. So you don't understand anything, he says. You don't even know that you were blind. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't like to presume what people know and don't know, and I don't like to tell them they don't understand anything. I think it's very, very presumptive. He's not necessarily wrong. Yeah, all of the ways we act are influenced by social conditioning, specifically the conditioning that comes from living under a Judeo-Christian heteronormative patriarchal society, which he seeks to uphold and further inflict on future generations. So, yeah, I don't take kindly to some boring-ass guy telling me I don't understand anything and I don't understand how we're socially conditioned. I'm very aware of it. In fact, it's been very difficult to get in touch with a truer version of myself and taking away all of the layers and filters that conditioning has kind that social conditioning has kind of put over me. It's been very different. And I think this is true for a lot of people who don't comfortably fit into these types of social norms and mores and they have to kind of discover for themselves who they are external to these values so yeah he goes on to say it's careful respectful so he's talking about the bible i I just want to uh, jump back and he he talks a little about about the Tao Te Ching and biblical stories and He's very, he's basically saying it's the, the Bible is the product of processes that remain fundamentally beyond our comprehension. Um, Actually, it's not the product of processes that remain beyond our comprehension. It's called a bunch of old guys decided they were going to create a religion and a bunch of people just kept writing books and then some monks edited them and left in the good parts that seemed to work for the time and it's actually just kind of like a random clusterfuck and I mean it has general themes of course I've read the bible I've read several books several times by the way I'm not just saying this as someone who hasn't actually read and studied the bible and also studied different uh, translations of it and different languages to get a better context of it this is actually something I've spent a lot of time doing So, uh, and still, there's not really much in it that, I don't know, that you can't find other places. He He goes on to say, speaking of the Bible, its careful, respectful study can reveal things to us about what we believe and how we do and should act that can be discovered in almost no other manner. Gosh, this is so not true. We know how to act. We know how to be regardless of, you know, what your kind of moral beliefs are. But because we have thousands of years of history and empirical research telling us what kind of works best for socially acceptable ways to be, ways that are going to uh, work for societies. And we're still figuring this out. This is still very much a work in process, but the Bible is not some mythical book that teaches you anything differently than you can get from a lot of other religious or philosophical texts or scientific texts. Um, It is not a divinely inspired work. It is something humans wrote to subjugate other humans with specifically women and it has some good stories. It's that's not to say there aren't there isn't useful anecdotes in the Bible and there's not useful advice, but it's not very special. And I've read a lot of other religious texts too. And again, I I don't really see how it is more special or divinely inspired than any other set of principles. You know that, and it doesn't come again like that the Bible even started this or that these values come only from the Bible is not correct. Um, You know, just considering history and timelines or other religions saying the same things long before the Bible was even a thing. It just became dominant through war and missionaries spreading the word and all this stuff. Um, And honestly, I mean, it's, it is 
a very successful religion. Good job, Christianity, for, I don't know, killing so many people that you were able to dominate, you know, and spread your weird ideology everywhere. Cool. He kind of, then he goes into, and this is where it gets choosy, he goes from like your regular self-help stuff, and then he brings up the Bible stuff, and this is where he's sliding in his sneaky little, we're going to talk about the Old Testament God and New Testament God. So then he goes into a lot of Bible discussion here, and it's mostly boring. Um, but again, it's good to read. I mean, it's not that great to read, but it's good to understand where he's coming from, because if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you believe that human beings are a certain way, and the way that they are is pretty fixed and can only be changed through the acceptance of a divine being and the belief in this divine being. Um, and it's actually kind of very anti anti-self-help really it kind of says like stop trying to help yourself and just give everything over to god and he's kind of talking about the difference between the old testament god and the new testament god and how the old testament israelites and their forebears knew that god was not to be trifled with and that whatever hell the angry deity might allow to be engendered if he was crossed was real and he then goes on to say, having recently passed through a century defined by the bottomless horrors of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, we might realize the same thing. <sighs> Again, um, those people were able to exploit religion for their own purposes or other philosophies for their own purposes. Uh, we are great at creating our own hells here on Earth. There's a saying, hell is other people, and I think it's a good saying. He goes to contrast this vindictive, vengeful Old Testament God with the New Testament God. He says, New Testament God is often presented as a different character. Although the book of Revelation, with its final judgment, warns against any excessively naive complacency. He is a more kindly Geppetto, master craftsman and benevolent father. He wants nothing for us but the best. He is all loving and all forgiving. Sure, he'll send you to hell if you behave badly, if you misbehave badly enough. Fundamentally, however, he's the god of love. Well, it's just not true. It's the same god throughout, and New Testament God does all sorts of weird, petty shit to people also. I mean, it's contrasted in modern Christianity because there needs to be more optimism and there needs to be... I think that kind of contrast because if because if you uh, are reading the Bible in context, you realize this is the same God doing all of these things. You don't get to have a new God just because you have a New Testament. That same God did all of those things and killed all of those people. And yes, sure, the Christians will argue that he was operating on some kind of higher divine moral plane than we can understand, therefore his actions are justified and all of that, but no, we created God in the image of ourselves, and we're petty and vindictive and awful in a lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe not fundamentally, I don't, I'm not saying I believe in original sin, but like we did create God in our image. And he goes on to say that these gods are the same, and that it requires a, a kind of synergy of them to fully kind of grasp this point he talks a bit about Nietzsche criticizing the New Testament God and then after that says this acceptance of the light of this New Testament God being let in will bring you to a better understanding of this Old Testament God and kind of bring you to a higher purpose and that you need to have that kind of synergy to fully understand the meaningfulness of your life. And he goes on to say, you decide that you will start treating Old Testament God with all his terrible and oft arbitrary seeming power as if he could be the New Testament God, even though you understand the many ways in which that would be absurd. In other words, you decide to act as if existence might be justified by its goodness, if only you behaved properly. 
And it is that decision, that declaration of existential faith, that allows you to overcome nihilism and resentment and arrogance. He goes on to say, It is instead the realization that the tragic irrationalities of life must be counterbalanced by an equally irrational commitment to the essential goodness of being. Okay, so... I see what he's doing. Gosh, this is so... uh, This kind of gets into, like, almost, like, new-agey territory. So we should just double down on the irrationality of this whole religion because that's always worked. I See, I, I don't think that's a solution. Why not embrace something completely different instead? Instead of trying to synergize two concepts that seem to be in conflict with each other, this all-devouring God versus this all-loving God, except that maybe there's this other option or this degenerate, absurd reality that you could inhabit instead. That's where I spend a lot of my time, I guess. Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a binary. And again, so much of this book is a reflection of binary black and white thinking. You know, chaos is bad. Order is good. You need an antidote to chaos. You know, and that's just not what life is. Life is a lot more complex than that. That is why we have suffering, because we have so many questions about the irrationality of it all. And it's okay to question those instead of embracing the irrationality or instead of saying, oh, well, nothing makes sense, but I'm just going to, you know, believe in this God anyway. It's fine to question it. There's nothing wrong with that. And then he kind of moves on. He kind of starts giving you more tactics again for how to fix things, how to make your life better, you know, if you're encountering specific problems. For ex- for example, I have a-, a highlight here. Aim lower. Search until you find something that bothers you that you could fix, that you would fix, and then fix it. That might be enough for the day. And he goes on to talk about a stack of papers and decluttering. And I think that's good advice. Again, you don't have to, like, change your entire worldview to have a better life. And I'm not saying, like, Christians should become atheists or atheists should become Christians or anything like that. I think you could have these practical goals without the value judgments of Christianity. I don't know if Jordan Peterson believes the same thing. I think for him, his value system is very much entwined with the self-help stuff. In fact, it very much is, because he fl- he switches back and forth between talking about just very, you know, broadly appealing self-help points and these deeper religious concepts. And then he seeks the religion in the middle, and this is exactly what he did this time. Again, not a whole lot to hate about this chapter. He kind of goes off the rails in the middle, talking about the Bible and how, you know, and I I don't know, and I don't want to go too hard on his point about embracing the irrationality of it all. I think think there is an absurdist point within that that makes sense, you know, and that is a kind of point of meaninglessness that nihilism says. Like, it is absurd. Nothing is meaningful no nothing is objectively meaningful we get to create our own reality like this is a good thing we're not bound to the reality of old testament god or new testament god or anything like that you know do we treat other people well like what are you know some consistent values that make up a peaceful society what are our goals is is a peaceful society worth aiming for Does that give our lives value? How do we create such a thing? Can we create such a thing absent a religious value system? These are all really important questions, and I think that we do have answers in secular philosophy, that we don't really need these religious points that have been just beaten over our heads for all of history to be good people and to be successful people and to bring a little bit of stability to our lives and of course he ends it with the great quote compare yourself to who you were yesterday not to who someone else is today so yeah i mostly agree with this chapter i gotta say uh i just find it a total drag to read (laughs) 
and I don't think that he does a great job of making the case that you need his specific religion to bring this order into your life and to make yourself a better person. I just am really not convinced by that. I've always had an internal value system. I remember even being a child and having something like that. I didn't grow up with religion. I didn't need religion to be a good person. Then again, I've talked to people who've had the exact opposite experience. They don't have that internal value system, and they had to learn it through philosophy or religion or other types of ideology. And that's fine. Everyone's different. Everyone's an individual. But what you could do instead, if you want a different take on this, is that, well, so the point of the Queer Eye episode, so I'm going to tell you what Queer Eye episode you should watch, because it's one of my favorite ones, and it's a real tearjerker. It kind of, it makes the same point, but it also kind of challenges some of Peterson's points, too. So... It's specifically the binary thinking of gender roles. So throughout the book, you, you very much see this black and white thinking from Peterson, and he doesn't seem to believe in a kind of, you know, middle ground or spectrum-based type of thinking. And so I think an episode that you should watch, a Queer Eye episode you should watch instead, is Queer Eye Season 2, Episode 5, Sky's the Limit. And this really, I think, encapsulates my points earlier about having imagination and realizing that when there is no objective rules or standards that you have to be forced to conform to, then you can do whatever you want. You can make whatever reality works for you. And it's very liberating. And this episode really captures that because this episode is about a trans man who recently just had top surgery and wants the Fab Five's help with being more masculine and, and be, you know finding the man that they know they've always been. And so the main character is Skylar, and so the, the episode starts out with Skylar having top surgery, and you can just tell how important this is to him when he looks down and at his new chest and it's deeply moving so the, already the episode starts with like it's a, this really heart-wrenching moment and you can just tell that like this is such a monumental moment for Skylar and then you kind of get to know Skylar a little bit more and Skylar holds on to this kind of Peter Pan reality where he's stuck in his early 20s despite being 30 because he never got to have that experience. And he, it goes a little bit into his history because he was rejected from his family for first for being gay and then for being trans and they tried to commit him institutionalize him, calling him mentally ill, the thing, the things that people think about trans people. And he, so he had to separate from his family and move out when he was still in high school, which is a very difficult thing to do at such a young age. It's, I've, I moved out the day before I turned 18, right after I graduated high school. And it's my life has been a little more of a struggle because of that. I haven't really been able to rely on a family structure the same way other people were able to. And Bobby is reflecting with him in this seg segment too, because he was also rejected from his own family for being gay. And he emphasizes chosen family and talks about how angry he used to be. And this is very much in the vein of they're comparing themselves to who they were before and showing the growth that they've had. So Bobby says he used to be a very angry person. And Skylar said he struggled with substance abuse while suffering under the judgment of his family. And both of these men have changed and grown over the years, and they've come more into their own as they've gotten older. And so it's, it's a reflection, it's not, and it's basically a glimpse into like, oh, look at how far we've come based on where we were, because Skylar was someone who felt trapped in his own body for all of his life. 
And then he was rejected by his own family for embracing what he knew to be true internally, what he knew was reality for him, despite what everyone else is telling him he should do or what norms he should conform to. And it, it's, it, it really is such a great episode because it captures this idea of transformation and, you know, chosen family especially is highly emphasized in this episode, which a lot of people in LGBTQ communities have to rely on because our families reject us for simply existing. So Skyler relies on his chosen family and he has an open house policy where any, you know, anyone can kind of come in and, and feel accepted and he's a huge advocate for queer and trans rights and just seems like a total, totally awesome person. And there's some really difficult parts to watch. Uh, for example, he hasn't been able to look at himself in a suit since a bad experience uh, he had previously, and he also struggled in the hospital with being misgendered because of how he suffered feeling trapped in a female body. And he's ta he has taken these huge steps. He, ha he hasn't necessarily gone the route of like incremental change and like these small kinds of steps. He's taken huge steps to become the man he is. But it is also those small steps, as Jordan Peterson mentions in this chapter, such as like small details like getting the right gender marker on his license that are really hugely meaningful. So top surgery is obviously a giant step, but so are small things, you know, so are these getting your license changed, getting a nice fitted suit, being able to take like recognize the bad experience he had in the past, but overcome it by putting himself in that same situation again that could have been very very disturbing and overcoming it and saying, you know, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not the person who's afraid to put on a suit. I'm going to do it again because, because I'm the man that I always was meant to be. And I think this, this approach, the theme of the sky's the limit is a lot more hopeful than Peterson's kind of incrementalist approach too. So Skyler has rejected the judgments and social mores of traditionalist dogma, opening himself up to unlimited potential and really beautiful outcomes. And Skyler doesn't even conform to traditional masculine norms, too. He has more of an androgynous look, which I was really grateful for in this episode, because I think even th there's even confinements within the gender binary that trans people sometimes find themselves in you know some trans people like to present like trans men like to present as very very masculine and hyper masculine and that's fine i think everyone should present how they want to i think you know of course like, but there's all these people who are kind of in between and maybe they don't necessarily want to fit in that hyper masculine presentation Maybe they want something a little more androgynous, and Skylar is one of these these guys who wants a kind of more androgynous look, which I really relate to. I've always appreciated androgyny. I've, I've always admired it and been fascinated with the kind of spectrum of gender and how you don't have to conform to either a very feminine or a very masculine presentation. And this is something that you know, I, I really deeply admire and I, I practice myself to some degree too. You know, I the way I look on the outside is certainly not how I feel on the inside. I, I actually don't even conceive of myself of having a gender at all. Uh, but I could do a whole other episode about that, which I might... I, I, I gotta do a gender episode at some point to kind of explain... <laughs> I don't know, I guess... I guess I don't have to explain my non-binaryness or whatever, but I do have some kind of personal experience in this area uh, with regards to how I'm perceived versus how I know I actually am on the inside and the kind of friction that's caused in my life. <laughs> but I really like Tan's advice, too. Tan is very encouraging to Skylar's style specifically the androgynous style, telling him there are no rules he has to follow. 
And again, this is all the whole point of like the sky's the limit thing. Like this is kind of the opposite of the 12 rules for life. It's like, hey, no, you can kind of think outside of this box. Like maybe there are some good guidelines to follow for, in Skylar's case, of looking more masculine. But ultimately it is up to him. He can determine his own destiny. So I think it's a lot more useful for people who are look, really looking to live their best lives. When you realize there are no rules, you get to make them up. And it's pretty fun. Again, one of my rules is, like, don't hurt people. So, you know, I'm not saying, like, <laughs> some rules aren't good. You know, I think the rule don't hurt people is a pretty good rule that I live by. But, you know, you, do, you can be a little more creative and flexible in your approach. And he also is a huge fan of Todrick Hall, and he's compared himself to that saying, holding up Todrick as someone he wants to look at and embody and who's been inspirational in his transformation. And Todrick actually comes by to encourage Skylar, and this is such, this is so great too, because Skylar's just so happy and I, I wouldn't say Skylar is like negatively comparing himself to Todrick at all. Um, it's more of like an inspirational kind of thing. And Todrick reinforces Skylar's individuality and unwillingness to conform to the norms of his family who rejected him too. And I think that's just incredibly important because if you're if you come from a family that tells you this is the way reality is and it can only be this way or that way you're you are artificially limited in your imagination and knowing that you aren't that and being being able to escape that binaried religious dogmatic thinking is absolutely crucial for self-development and growth so Todrick reinforces that and then even at the very end i even love the very end queer eye tip where it talks about non-binary styles, and if you're wanting to kind of change up your style, you can go into different areas, of the story, you know, kind of, uh, and even the, the Queer Eye guys kind of changed up their style a little bit at the end, too. You saw Antony and Bobby both wearing more kind of feminine, like Antony put eyeliner on, and Bobby put a dress on, and Jonathan is non-binary on the show. Like, he's frequently dressing... I, and I love Jonathan's whole kind of non-binary aesthetic where he does wear very feminine clothing a lot of the times. And if you follow him on Twitter or Instagram, I, he's just such a joy to follow. He posted this video about him ice skating the other day and learning how to ice skate. It was just the most adorable thing ever. But then he still rocks like, you know, the full on beard and like has a long hair and uh, like so lovable so awesome and i think this really it just kind of points out that you aren't confined to this reality or that reality you aren't confined to there only being 12 rules or only thinking chaos is bad uh, or anything like that or thinking there are only two genders you know this whole gender binary is something that comes from dominant traditional conservative social mores but the gender spectrum is something that's widely recognized by other cultures throughout history so again it's not su i don't find it super useful to derive all of our morality from a text like the bible it doesn't even begin to cover the vastness of human experience and there are a lot of other cultures we can kind of look to for clarity in this area. There are a lot of different, whether they're Native American tribes or other types of people who don't recognize gender as being binary. There are ideas like third gender. There are people who are third gender. Or there are people who are, some cultures have created five different genders. You know, so... Again, we are able to shape our realities, and we can grow in these very positive ways, and not necessarily in the ways that other people want us to. And not necessarily having to fit the molds of other people, even in our fields. So yeah, I mean, I totally agree with the rule, you know, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Because you can see your self-growth over time as you learn more and 
come up with your own value systems and your and are able to make your own value judgments absent from the pressure of social conditioning. And I think a better way to say it is be yourself. Screw what others think. And that's the title of this podcast. <laughs> So everyone, thanks for your patience. I'm going to be getting, I hope to get more of these out soon. I've been going through some weird stuff in my personal life that I'll probably be doing maybe a podcast about or at least write a little bit about. So there's been a bit of a delay, but I hope to hear you all soon. And yeah, be yourself. Screw what other people think. <laughs>